Hey everyone, it's Matt here from Free Associations. We've got a great episode coming up for you, but before we get into it, I wanted to uh, make a quick correction to something that we, we talk about. So you'll hear that in segment two, we talk about the, the new rule that the NIH uh, is putting in place to redefine clinical trials. And uh, it seems that in the time between uh, the period at which we tape this and now the time at which we release it, there may have been a, a change in the decision to implement this rule. I'm, I'm going off of a, a paper that I, a, a website that I'm reading on the Association for Psychological Sciences uh, website in which they say the U.S. Congress has directed the NIH to delay enforcement of a new policy that would reclassify basic research involving humans as clinical trials. So I don't know for sure, um, but just uh, be aware of that when you hear our conversation. And now on to the show. Welcome to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who thinks that the latest medical study is as complicated to understand as reading James Joyce. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Howdy, Matt. Hey, Matt. And we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. So before we get started, we do want to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange, which is Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. A reminder, just uh, if you can, go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes. That'll help uh, other people find us, and uh, we'd really appreciate it. Now, on to the show. Unless it's a bad rating, in which case you really should not. Obviously. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to take on a study that asks whether treatment uh, for back, knee, and hip pain as treated with opioids is better than treatment with non-opioids. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about changes that the uh, National Institutes of Health has made to the definition of a clinical trial, and we'll talk about clinical trial registries in general. And then in our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that have us snickering in the hallways uh, and uh, things that just made us laugh until we couldn't continue to do the show anymore. So let's get into it. So for segment one, oh, uh, before I do, I want to uh, say that we've received a, a bunch of listener feedback, uh, some some suggestions for some topics. We want to respond to as many of those as we possibly can, but there's only so many shows. So We love fan mail. We love the fan mail. Keep it coming, but uh, we probably won't be able to get to all of your suggestions, but we will, we will definitely try. So in segment one, we're going to take on an article that looks at whether opioids are better than non-opioids for the treatment of chronic back, knee, and hip pain. The study was published in JAMA. The first author was uh, Aaron Krebs of the Center for Chronic Disease Outcome Research at the Minneapolis Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. And the study is titled Effect of Opioid versus Non-Opioid Medications on Pain-Related Function in Patients with Chronic Back Pain or Hip or Knee Osteoarthritis Pain, the Space Randomized Clinical Trial. So here are some of the headlines. Uh... The jury's in. Opioids are not better than other medications for chronic pain, says NBC News. Opioids no more effective than other pain medications, says U.S. News and World Report. World Report. For all their risks, opioids had no pain-relieving advantage in a year-long clinical trial, says the LA Times. And NPR says opioids don't beat other medications 
for chronic pain. Um, and uh, Vox, I, I thought this was new. Vox says, finally proof. Opioids are no better than other medications for some chronic pain, which I thought was a little bit more nuanced than the others. So, Don, let me let me start with you. Can you give us the uh, the overview on what this study was about, what they did, and what they found? Sure. Um, bear with me. It's somewhat of a complex study. It's going to take me a little bit to get through. But just in terms of background, um, for really quite a number of years, <clears throat> opioid therapy has become the standard of care for chronic pain, despite the lack of really good um, randomized controlled trials and evidence that's, that, that, that support that it's better than non-opioids. Um, observational studies have found that treatment of long-term opioid therapies associated with poor pain outcomes, greater functional impairment, and lower return to work rates. Those are observational studies, not what they did here. Um, it's a huge problem, obviously. Uh, there's, there's, there are, there's lots of death and disability associated with it, apparently. 500,000 deaths have occurred since the year 2000, and every year more people die of opioids than in traffic accidents. So what these authors try to do is try to determine if opioids are better for um, at pain relief, chronic pain relief, um, associated with the three conditions that Matt mentioned, which is low back pain, knee pain, or hip pain, in a, as standardized a way as possible. Their hypothesis was that opioids compared with non-opioid medications would lead to better pain-related function and pain better pain intensity, i.e. less pain intensity, um, or more pain relief, um, uh, and have a um, um, more beneficial um, effect on adverse effects. Um, they, what the, the method that they employed was what they call a pragmatic mm-hmm. RCT, a pl- pragmatic randomized control trial. And I think probably the best way to consider this is it's, it, it's really halfway between an efficacy and an eff- and, and, um, effectiveness trial in that what they try to do is they, they, they set it up in a, in a very real-world situation and um, in a clinic setting, and they, they, they set it up in such a way that there is a fair degree of flexibility in terms of how these patients are treated within their assignment allocation. Can I, can I stop you there? So wh- how would this do? I mean, I, I think of a pragmatic trial as actually being an effectiveness trial. In that you're sort of really trying to do things in real world conditions. Well, I, you know, again, the complexity of, of the intervention that they devised here, I think, is 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 maybe a little bit more than we want to get into in detail. But uh, they they structured it in such a way that that the individual treating clinician had a lot of flexibility in terms of the 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 various choices of medications within the opioid or non-opioid um, categories. So it wasn't a head-to-head comparison of morphine versus non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, in which case it would be very hard to do a study like that because there would be a lot of adverse effects or there would be dropout or, you know, there it just would be hard to implement it and the generalizability would be would be relatively limited. So um, it's it's a it's a I think a relatively think new new concept this pragmatic RCT, but they they made great effort to try to make it as as flexible as possible. So uh, as I said, they compared uh, the use of opioid versus non-opioid medications for 12 months on those three conditions. The inclusion criteria were that people had to have moderate um, or great <clears throat> back, hip, or knee pain despite um, prior use of analgesics, and that that pain was every day um, for about six months, <clears throat> and it was five or more on a three-item pain intensity, so really pretty bad pain. And that it interfered, and or that it interfered um, with the enjoyment of life and general activity. They excluded people who were on long-term opioid therapy or had contraindications to all the drug classes 
um, such as active substance abuse disorder or um, particular sensitivity to some of the non-opioid uh, non medications, um, and conditions that could also interfere with outcome assessment like life expectancy less than 12 months or severe depression. Those were the, the patients that were excluded. The population that conducted the study in 62 VA primary care clinics in Minneapolis, um, and they went through the ele uh, electronic health records um, in these um, primary care um, facilities to identify people who had had this six-month history of back, hip, or knee pain. And those are the people that were screened into the study. They randomized, um, they stratified by the primary pain diagnosis. So they seg segregated out um, people according to those three um, pain diagnosis categories. Um, and that, that, that being hip, hip, knee, and back, right? And back, right. Yeah, got it. Um, and the medication assignment, once they were randomized, was known to the treating physician and was known to the patients. So this is not a blinded not study. Not a blinded study. Um, but it was not known to the study assessors who did the, 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 the final um, evalu evaluation. So the prescribing strategy was complex. So for each category, for the opioid category and for the um, non-opioid category, they had sort of three levels of intensity. And this is what I mean in terms of it being complex and gave the treating physician the, um, the ability to be able to, to escalate the, the, the level of um, analgesic care for the particular person because things change yep. over time. Um, I won't go into what the particular drugs were because I don't think it's uh, really um, that, that important. The follow-up was monthly initially, and then if they remained st stable, they were followed one, every one to three months. The adherence was self-report, and they, they, they also assessed the refill prescription records from, um, from state, uh, sort of, uh, state databases in terms of pharmacy records. The outcomes were pain-related function, um, which was assessed by a pain inventory interference scale, pain intensity, um, and they determined what was a minimally, minimal clinically important difference, a priori, as their outcome. Um, and they also assessed adverse effects by using a 19-item checklist of medication-related symptoms for either the um, non-opioids or for the opioids. Secondary outcomes were there were 10 yeah, scales. Were, they were, they were they a went, ton. They went overboard, I think, on that. But the 10 or more scales of function or quality of life. Um, adverse events, they determined uh, via new hospitalizations, ED visits, or falls. They also looked at opioid misuse, which they defined as using the opioids in the opioid arm in a manner other than um, prescribed, such as MD shopping for additional prescriptions or diversion of the, med of the opioids substance use disorder or death. Um, and the statistical analysis, I think, was basically pretty straightforward. They did power calculation that they needed 115 to complete therapy, and based on that, they, they determined that they needed to enroll 265 patients, um, which they did, and they ended up randomizing 240 because 25 withdrew prior to randomization. The follow-up was pretty remarkable, I thought. 98% follow-up at 12 months. At 12 yeah, months. yeah, that's really good. That Ooh. was that was pretty amazing. Um, the bottom line was that their, really, when they, when they assessed those outcomes that I just mentioned at 12 months, um, both groups improved, but there was no real difference when you did a head-to-head -head comparison of the opioid and the non-opioid um, group. And um, the, 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 the improvement that both gr groups enjoyed was defined as greater than a 30% improvement in the scales as compared to baseline. Mm -hmm. um, 
more, most patients in the opioid group did not escalate to a higher intensity of medication, which is a good thing. Um, and the pain intensity, um, the pain intensity was better in the non-opioid group. Um, it wasn't different than the other group, but it was better, but it was better by a very small amount. Mm -hmm. and, and it was less than what they a priori decided was a, a clinically significant difference. Um, there were more medication-related symptoms over 12 months in the opioid group as compared to the other group, um, and there was no difference in adverse outcomes or misuse measured the measures, though they were underpowered mm -hmm. really to be able to, to make that assessment. So that's, that's sort of where we are. And so overall, so if this, this pans out as a, as a good study, this would be good news in that regardless of how you interpret it, it would mean uh, less of a, of, a, of a need for uh, use of opioids, or you could also say that opioids and, and, and other analgesics are, are just as good, and you could use either depending on what your preference was. And if you had concerns over um, issues with opioids, you could, you could swap out, use a different set of, of medications. Chris, what's your, what's your take, though, on the, on the quality of this study? Um, yeah, so it was a, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it, I thought it was very uh, useful that they attempted sort of to create this um, clinical trial protocol that was very applicable to sort of a pain management paradigm in, in clinical practice. So um, like, for example, if you were randomized to the opiate arm, there was this three-tiered sort of step up in terms of intensity of therapy. Like at the beginning, you were you know, given a prescription for immediate um, release morphine or immediately release oxycodone. And then the reason behind that is that it quickly controls your pain, but it also leaves your system relatively quickly. And so the theory is that this would be uh, less prone to, uh, to abuse and, mm -hmm. and to lead to addiction. And if that didn't work, then they went up to the long-acting uh, forms Sustained of these drugs. Acting. And if that didn't work, then they stepped up to, I think it was a transdermal fentanyl patch, which would be like, you know, all day long being exposed to opiates. Um, and on the on the non-opiate side, they started with Tylenol or ibuprofen or other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And if that didn't work, they moved up to adding a, a, you know, sort of adjunctive pain therapies like amitriptyline or gabapentin, which are believed to sort of modulate pain pathways. And if that didn't work, they and oh, and also the, the use of topical lidocaine and capsaicin creams, like for the affected area. And if that also did not work, then they moved up to tramadol, which is a an anti it's an analgesic that has quasi opiate characteristics, but is not actually an opiate. So of all the the non opiates, it's considered to be the one that is most prone to abuse, mm -hmm. um, but it is not technically technically an opiate. Um, and so in that sense, I thought it was a very useful study, and I thought that the the the, the take home message from this was generally positive, which is on, you know, one, that very few of the patients who are randomized to the opiate arm got into trouble by using opiates. And so you could say, well, again, if opiates are, are managed in a very prescripted, careful, supervised way, the risk of leading to addiction need not be so great. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's an important point. Um, and, and, and two, which I think is an important point that gets missed in the headlines. Yeah. I think, and I think that is an important point, but of course the flip side to that is that unfortunately the use of opiates in, in the real world is the wild, wild west. They're given them for in very uncontrolled settings at extended doses without any supervision. And it leads to a lot of problems. So, um, the, but the more interesting, uh, 
endpoint, which I think was what, what Don was showing, is that, that there was no advantage to the opiates uh, for chronic pain management. And this is distinct from, you know, if you have an infected tooth and you have an abscess, uh, you know, Tylenol is not going to do it for you. Or a broken maybe, hip. Or a broken hip. You, you probably need opiates. There's, there's, there's nothing that can control the pain in the short term. But that is a totally different question from whether long-term exposure to opiates is an effective way of managing chronic pain. And it turns out, in this case, it, it's, it's really not. So I thought that would, those are two really interesting uh, take-home messages from this. So, um, and I and I agree with those points, and I, I it's it's a really interesting study. Does the does the sample size bother you guys? I mean, I, it's I agree a with bit you. small. It's it's um, two hundred and forty odd. You said two sixty five. I think it was actually two forty because I think they didn't actually quite achieve it. Or, or two, anyway, twenty five dropped out before twenty five. That was right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I got it. You did say that. Um, you know, I mean. Uh, as always, I mean, we're we gonna are we gonna draw how strong a conclusion we're we gonna draw from 120 patients per arm. But in particular, it's not just the 120 patients per arm that's 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 an issue that is of concern to me. It's that if you actually look at their baseline tables, so the tables of what the the characteristics of the two groups your that got the uh, opioids and that got the standard of care. Uh, is it standard of care? Would you call that standard of care? Probably um, not. Let's not just really, call it because it's, call it's sort of a opioids more and non-opioids effective yeah. non-opioid yeah, yeah. management strategy. Fair enough. Yeah. Opioids versus non-opioids, they're not perfectly comparable. There are some things there that are kind of uh, concerning. So they were twenty uh, percent versus eleven percent in terms of smoking. You know, we're not talking about lung cancer as the outcome here. So does that matter? You know, I, I have no idea. Um, difference in terms of um, uh, illicit drug use, differences in terms of uh, being of employment status, you know, things that aren't absurd to find in a trial where you've only randomized 120 to each group, but still would raise some concerns. On the other hand, from what I can tell, at least in the way I puzzled it out, it seems to me that the group that, that, that when you, if you were to adjust for these things, it would further favor the, uh, the non-opioids. So it's not that I'm thinking here that opioids are actually better and it got missed because of the way the randomization was done. But the imbalances do sort of lead me to some, some questions. Don's so, so raising Matt, his hand. Don, I'm <laughs> officially calling on you. So Matt, um, are, do, do you think that, uh, pursuant to this point, do you think that um, therefore there should be a different sample size calculation in the setting of a trial like this, which is a pragmatic RCT, because you have less ho f less homogeneous arms. Mm. There's more variability in each arm, and therefore you're going to need more numbers to achieve precision because the variability will be great. And, yeah. and, and, and if so, do we change the rules for sample size calculations as a result? And has anybody really thought about that? Well, I think people, there's a lot of work that's been done on sample size calculations for thinking about subgroup effects. Uh, and, and obviously, if you really do want to think about subsets of the population and whether or not these treatments are effective or more effect, one is more effective than the other within subsets of the population, you need to power your study very differently. Um, you know, to answer your question, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. Part of the reason why their sample size is uh, smaller than you might expect is because they have a continuous outcome with what looks like to be not huge variability, and therefore the the ability to detect differences in those uh, in that scale is very different from what you would have if we were looking at proportions. You know, proportion that achieved an outcome. Um, 
or you'd have to have really big differences in the proportion achieving the outcome to be able to detect them. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know that you need a different sample size. So much as my, my point is more, if you do a randomized trial that doesn't have a large sample size, the expectation of balance isn't there. And so the idea that that you know that we love randomized trials partly because they create the the expectation that I have two equal populations in which to touch my intervention that doesn't necessarily hold true. It holds true in the expectation on average, but it doesn't hold true for one study. I would no, I would say I think you know you need probably need more another study. I think my second point here is about the prag- nature of the pragmatic trial itself, though. I mean, it, it, pragmatic trials, as I understand them, is essentially trying to say let's do this. Under more real-world conditions, let's really try to understand what the impacts of, of, of you know, uh, the effectiveness is, which I would agree with your take, Don, that this is probably not a pure effectiveness study because, as, as Chris says, there was, there was probably better management of, of uh, pain medication in this study than there might be under usual care. There are some exclusion criteria in here that would suggest this is not you know, sort of the general population. On the other hand, it wasn't excessive. But when you do these pragmatic trials, I do wonder whether the effects that you're observing are dependent on uh, things that are not necessarily generalizable, like the quality of the treating physician in managing the pain or, um, you know, something about the the specific nature of the population uh, in terms of their ability to access care, whatever it is that we learn a lot from these pragmatic trials, but I'm not sure we necessarily get generalizable information that would say, in all cases, one of these drugs is, or sets of drugs is going to outperform the other. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all really good points, Matt. I, I, I was curious for your, your, you know, both of your opinions about the, the blinding issue. Yeah, um, where, yeah, yeah. you know, for obvious reasons, they, they couldn't blind the participants to whether they were getting opiates versus Tylenol and capsaicin cream. I mean, it's, it was, it was clear what they were receiving. Um, so the only, so this was not a double blinded trial. This was a single blinded trial and the blinding was for the assessors, but not for the patients which, or the patient's which, doctors. I'm not sure that matters. Blinding I'm not sure the assessors. it does, but I, I, I'd like us to check that box and like, you know, could there be some, I mean, they, they kind of address that in the, in the table one yep. by looking at like, the expectation for opiates versus non-opiates being more effective. And which and one they did seemed, they? They seemed about the same. So it, it, at least in terms of those who ended up randomized, there didn't seem to be a skew that the opioid people or like one group over the other were more persuaded that the, the opioids were going to be better than the Tylenol NSAID arm. Um, and that kind of gets at it, but it doesn't quite answer the question. So could there but, be but, some but, bias from that? And if so, how could that affect us? So it seems like you're, you're, you're sort of discounting a bit that the expectation data, which is fair enough. So then hum, hum, a, hum a few more bars of that and, and tell me what you would think would be the expected impact of that. Because my assumption is that people would think that the opioids are better for treating the pain and I therefore agree. would would report uh, lower pain scores at the end just because they were, they knew they were getting the opioids, and we don't see that. Yeah. We, I mean, we see yeah. the the analgesic arm or the non opioid arm doing yeah, better. I agree. I mean, I think they 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 kind of. I think they probably addressed that that issue, but it's still. It, it bothered it me, and I couldn't quite figure, figure out whether this led me to be a little bit more skeptical about this at the end of it. Yeah. So, Chris, are you talking about the pre-randomization perceptions of treatment groups? Yeah, yeah. which were very well balanced yeah. in the two arms. Yeah, they were. They were, yeah. So you're saying that you don't believe that that 
remove the bias? Well, I don't know that it entirely answers the question um, because this is at the very beginning of the study and then we have an entire year to go. And so do those perceptions shift? We have no, we have no idea. Mm. And we're only looking at a single time point at the end, which is like at the end of a year, are they any better? And so, you know, the skeptic could say, well, you know, chronic pain doesn't mean intractable permanent pain. Yeah. Maybe that like in both groups, their pain syndromes largely resolved or just got better by themselves and it had nothing to do with either medication. And had they looked like at one month increments, they might have saw, seen a very different um, set of, you know, be, you know uh, yeah. pain management efficacies as they were going along. Well, so so following on to that, I mean, what, so what do you think the role of a regression of the mean is in this study? So in order to get into the study, Don, you said, and I, I guess I missed this because I, I didn't really understand. You're saying they had to have a pain score of five to get into the study? Uh, I think it was five on a three-point scale, five or above on a three. <laughs> five on a three-point scale? I, that's no, what no, they three, said. Three-item scale. Three-item scale, that's right. So three it was a scale, <laughs> ten scale right. of three pain, scale. and five was the, mid, the, the, the cut point. On a scale of nice. one to ten. Does this one go up to 11? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so if you, if you had to get you had to get to a five to be in the study, let's say, so your pain is getting progressively worse. You you know it's fluctuating around. You hit the you hit the five when it gets really bad, but that's just sort of your outlier event. You get into the study, and then things start to go back to normal for you, regardless of whether you were being treated or not. And so everything st everyone's starting to get a little better, um, which is what you see. I mean, they go from five to three, I think, right. in both arms. You know, some of this may just be just just sort of regression, regression to the mean to the mean, and I, I you know. Whether or not that would sort of um, mute any differences you might see, I don't really know. Yeah, but I mean, it does make me wonder. I would have been much more persuaded, I guess, of of of, or at least I would I would I think I would have a much better understanding of what what the study interventions did if we'd seen more granular data in terms of pain scores over time. You know, mm -hmm. for example, do we see that the opioid? You know, you can imagine that perhaps the opioid peep, uh, a randomized group at one month had much better pain scores than the, yep. the, the Tylenol non-steroidals. Non we just don't know. Yep. Um, but that after, you know, but then those curves converge after six months. And so we could say at the six months or 12 months that there's no difference between these, these two pain management strategies. But is that really true? Because if you had like much better pain management at one month, that's not nothing. Yeah. That's significant, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I th so I think that that they they kind of skirted that question by saying that we're only looking at a chronic effect, which is fine, but it doesn't say that the two were necessarily equivalent during that entire duration mm -hmm, of follow up. Mm -hmm. Can I get up one one other issue, which is um, so this was a, a, an intention to treat analysis, right? So intention to treat is essentially the standard way that we analyze. Uh, superiority trials anyway, that we basically say in an intention to treat it. Oh, and by the way, I should be clear, I'm not uh, picking on this study. This is more a general comment about randomized trials, but it, I think it probably is more so in this one. Intention to treat says, we're going to randomize you to one group and we're going to analyze you in that group, regardless of whether or not you actually followed what we told you to follow. And these are over uh, the, the, the non-opioid arm. You could get many of these medications over the counter, right? So there's no reason to think that people in the opioid arm might not also be taking the drugs that are in the in the uh, non-opioid group. Tier, right? what, tier one, you could get them over the counter. Tier one, tier yeah, two you three. could get all of them. No. no, no, but you could certainly get Tylenol and, and ibuprofen right. and, and Aleve and those things. Right. So you could be taking those as well. But we essentially say, no, I'm going to keep you in the arm to which you were randomized, even if I know you maybe you stopped taking the opioids and you started taking the, the non-opioids. Um, 
And we do that because the, the randomization creates the expectation of these balanced groups, and we maintain that over the idea that we have uh, bias in which group you're actually, misclassification in which group you're actually in. We know that in the expectation that creates bias towards the null, so we, we diminish effects, and somehow we're okay with that. If I did an observational study and you knew that I had misclassified a lot of people on their exposure, would you be okay with that? Mm -mm. No, I wouldn't. Mm -mm. And, that's, and that's exactly this issue about the 12-month duration. Like, there's a lot of devils in those details there that we don't get at at all in this in this study. Like, yeah. what happened? You know, how much crossover was there? And they, they kind of sort of, you know, dance around this by looking at the frequency of medications that were prescribed through the VA system. Yep. But Tylenol and NSAIDs are not medications that people get through the VA pharmacy. They just go to see VS, like yep. everyone else. So that would not be tracked. So we really don't know about the crossover. Uh, you know, there's no robust data on this. Yeah. Now, if, if the if the misclassification were, as we, you know, as we say, non-differential, it didn't, you know, wasn't unrelated to your outcome, then that should just bias towards no effect. But it's not. Just towards, that would bias towards no effect. Uh, and we saw a slight, slight benefit to the non-opioid arm. But your point, I think, is 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 right here. Because you can't be related to the outcome. Because you can't go to CVS and say, "I'd like, I, you know, I'd like two dozen Vicodin, please." No, you can't do that. You can go and get as many Tylenol as you want, but you can't go to CVS and just get Vicodin. Uh, yeah, but so, that's different from whether or not it relates to your whether or not you're misclassified. So you're saying one arm is more likely to be misclassified. That's different from whether right your so, misclassified rate of your probability of being misclassified is more likely depending on whether or not you had a positive or negative outcome. So you, you, you're making the point that with non-differential misclassification, it's going to move, to, it's going to migrate to the null effect. Yep, yep. But my point is that there is a, there's an obvious asymmetry in the misclassification. It doesn't it go in both directions because the Tylenol people can't get access easily to opioids, whereas the opioids people have as much access to Tylenol as they want. And maybe that doesn't matter because Tylenol is a relatively, you know, no, no, weaker no, no, analgesic, no, no. but I don't know. No, no, no. I don't think it matters mathematically. All that matters is that it's not related to the outcome. It doesn't matter that it's asymmetric. I mean, essentially, that's your equivalent of sensitivity and specificity. And as long as it's not related to the outcome, you're fine. But I, I could, you could come up with a way that it, but it could, could be, be related to the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Because the outcome is related to your baseline. The, the, your outcome is pain at the end, which is related to pain at the beginning. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. You could come up with a mechanism by which that is differential misclassification and could explain what's going on here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I guess yeah, I mean, probably it's a, it's a, it's a, I buy it, but I'm not totally sold. Yeah. Don, I, I what think, about you? I think one other point that uh, we didn't mention, but that that um, uh, relates to the generalizability, is that this was done in a VA population, and only 13 yep. percent of the subjects were women. And yep. um, we all know that women have a much higher tolerance to pain because of childbirth that men never experience. But so you know, it's it's generalizable to this particular po population. I don't know whether that, Chris is asking whether or not that's true. That's true? Yeah, I'm just, I have no idea. I'm not a woman. I've never given birth. I don't either have I, but, but I, 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 I don't. Is it true? My, it's my perception that most women have a higher tolerance to pain. Well, I, I, I have no pain. idea. I have no idea. Not neither yeah. do I. All right. So any other any other last comments? I mean, I'm I'm done. I'm super impressed by all your insights, given that you actually read a completely different study when we were preparing for this. That we were we had our meeting this morning to to get ready for this study and Don kept kept making all these comments about the study that didn't seem and, to fit. And, and looking you guys are looking completely fit with what, what Chris and I were, what? were thinking and what is he saying? We asked him which page number it was on and we thought uh, that makes no sense. There is no page <laughs> twenty three twenty three. Yeah. He had read the wrong study. So starting to twig. Yeah. Yep. 
Huh. It was related. All I, right. I, I like my study better, frankly. Yeah, fair enough. Fine. All right. So let's uh, let's move on then. Let's get into our, our second segment where we are going to at least start off talking about this new policy that the, the National Institutes of Health have come out with that uh, has effectively redefined what's in and what's out when determining what's a clinical trial. And I... Probably gonna uh, get a blank look, Chris. Can you uh, can you tell us what the the new policy is really all about? Well, so ah. in 1999, okay. um, the government passed this law called the FDA Amendment Act, which, amongst many 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 things, also addressed this problem of trial registration and publication bias. And the concern was that. Um, because we don't know the denominator of studies that have been launched, it is very hard then to have some appropriate tallying up of the effectiveness of clinical trials on a given topic because we don't know what the denominator is. So to solve that, they said that for all clinical trials that met certain criteria, you had to register the clinical trials on this national website called clinicaltrials.gov. And that, um, and then subsequently, this, this law was amended called the uh, FDA Amendments Act, uh, the FDAMA um, of... Uh, uh, when 2000. was that? That was mm, 2005-ish, uh-huh. 5-ish, I think. Uh, anyway, um, in addition to requiring registration of trials on clinicaltrials.gov, they also required reporting of the results of those trials. So Cl- that we Clinicaltrials.gov is a, a online registry where you have to register your trial before you've started it in order to prevent people from... Starting trials and then just never reporting them or backfilling they the data because right. they don't like the results. There's the, also a European equivalent. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the the registration part creates the denominator, and then the for you know the the trying to persuade people to to disclose their results on clinicaltrials.gov um, is a way of trying to get to the numerator uh, so that you have a more complete understanding of how many studies on which topics were launched and what were the end results. To try to address publication bias. To try to address the issue of publication bias and selective publication um, based on outcomes of trials. So um, that's the the big context behind which this new policy shift occurred. Now, that initial policy applied to clinical trials, and really the focus was on drug trials and particularly industry-sponsored drug trials. But it has since generalized because I think the scientific community realized that this is not just a problem with pharma, but this is a problem with clinical research and maybe human subjects research full stop. And so we've kind of like, it's concentric rings of, of, of regulatory oversight here, where initially it was really just drug trials that everyone was thinking about, then it became all human subjects research, uh, uh, clinical research trials. And now the policy has expanded one further ring to say, we're going to also consider human subject studies that do not really relate necessarily to a medical intervention per se, but are done on humans, and but also involve some sort of medical intervention, like a you know a behavioral intervention, things that ordinarily- Some sort of intervention has to, to exist. Some sort of intervention has to exist, but would not have fallen into that paradigm of like drugs or devices or vaccines, yep. which are like the obvious ones. And so that change created, a, I think, a ripple of anxiety through the behavioral science community yep. about this, um, which I think, which is what we're going to discuss initially, right? So- have I summarized that more or less? Well, so yeah, I think correct? so. Let me, let me, so, so, so it seems that there are four. There are now four questions that have to be answered in order to figure out whether or not something falls under of this new definition of a clinical trial. So, does the study involve human participants? Are the participants prospectively assigned to an intervention? Is the study designed to evaluate the effect of an intervention on participants? 
and is the effect evaluated a health-related biomedical or behavioral outcome? If it meets all those criteria, then it is considered a trial, even whether or not you have ever randomized anyone or uh, as long as you've, you know, you've done something that is considered an intervention and relates to a health outcome, you are now doing a clinical trial. And this has implications, both because now it means it needs to be registered, which is probably in and of itself not a terrible thing, but it, it creates some logistical problems it's for things that spike. didn't used to be. Um, but it also has implications because some funding mechanisms don't allow clinical trials to be done uh, under using that funding mechanism. And, and that's going to change things for people in the behavioral sciences, I think. Mm-hmm. So the, the example that, I, that we were talking about that I read online was um, the Washington Post was, was doing an article on this. And they talked about a, a researcher who was saying, you know, they do, they do studies where they're, uh, they'll give a person a, a box of, of Legos and they'll say, your job is to sort out the red, you know, find all the red Legos. And they're trying to understand how does the human brain uh, go, what's the process by which you go about trying to, to do this? Well, now that is considered an intervention. If there is some sort of health uh, related or behavioral outcome, which there's a behavioral outcome now, and you have asked somebody to do a task, that's an intervention. This could potentially then become a trial that needs to be registered in a trial registry. You know, that's just a that's a big change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, if like after having them go through this sorting of red Legos and another group sorts blue Legos, if they then asked, you know, how many of those patients felt anxious, that's a clinical trial. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a benign clinical trial, but that would essentially be, you know, we're seeing does red versus blue Legos lead to a change in anxiety? Absolutely, it's a clinical trial. And it also ups the it ups the uh, ethical oversight that comes when you label something a clinical trial. That that the um, it's not. Re- I, I don't think it's necessarily required. I think IRBs have some uh, leeway to determine what's a high risk and a low risk trial. But as soon as you say trial, you know, that's that's. What what I think we would consider this what that study that we just described to be something that's really minimal risk that's something you should be able to just sort of do, just do with with um, you know a, a basic IRB review but now that becomes a, a full board review that requires some uh, higher level of scrutiny. Don is scrunching up his face like he yeah. just ate a lemon. <laughs> no, you know, it's, so he does not. I hate lemons. I I love lemons. I mm. do too. No, just how about limes? No, I like limes. Right. Yeah. yeah, cool. Really, I do. Okay, we've 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 gone down a, a, a <laughs> rabbit hole here. Let's... Grape, grapefruits are, in fact, my favorite. Fruit. Okay. Um, no, the re- the, re- the reason I was scrunching was because um, <laughs> scrunching um, is a uh, word. The, the The funding issue, I think, is a real issue. And 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 if uh, you know, our, our colleagues in the behavioral sciences um, cannot get funded because they now have to define their proposal as a clinical trial and the funder says no clinical trials, I, you know, that, that that's sort of a catch 22. I can't imagine that that's not going to be worked out in some fa- form or fashion. Um, sure. I, I think that the, the, the burden of having to enter your study in the clinicaltrials.gov database, which we've all done, um, because it's necessary in the kind of work that we do is a burden, but it, in my opinion, is, you know, a 25-minute burden. It yeah. is not huge. And and I think that it is generally good in terms of transparency for having 
a unified database where all of this work is done so that the, the second person that does the Lego study and does it a little bit differently, that, that the, the people who assess it, or if you're going to do a meta-analysis on, you know, le Lego choosing, then you've got one, you know, you've got a, a, a unified place to, to, to get the stuff. And that, that statement about the burden not being too great just came from Don, <laughs> nickel and dime, Thea. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That yes. is shocking. Yes. I, I will stipulate that, that the, the uploading your data onto clinicaltrials.gov is, 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 is a right nuisance. It's a very user-unfriendly website. It's very tricky to navigate. You get errors it's all the time. That, you get narrow that's, errors. It is. I find it I very know, challenging to figure it out. Are we using the same database? We are. I, I, I don't think, think we are. So. Don okay. just pawns this off on a research but, assistant. No, but, I know, don't. <laughs> I, the soul, social science and behavioral uh, literature has been under such scrutiny lately yeah. for lack of we're, reproducibility. We're going to get into that studies. on a future episode for sure because yeah. that's it's a great topic. Because no, I, I think that I think that the other thing that that uh, that if we're really going to fix the system, we're really going to go the distance and 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 make sure that all the studies are adequately reposed in a, a database someplace reposed. that we're able to access. I think. The, we need to make sure that not only is the is the protocol put into the database, but that the results are put into the database. Because yeah, really a lot important. a lot of times the protocols are put in because you can't get your your data published until you've uh, you've established that before you even even enroll. But there's there, there's no stipulation that you have to include the data, the findings, the results. Right. And I think that that is equally as important. I so totally you, agree. So you see this as a good thing. You yeah, see this, I do. This, this, this I do. I do. I think it's a step towards transparency and reproducibility. Yeah. Standardization. So so hang on. So you could have accomplished the exact same thing then by simply requiring uh, pre-registration of observational or non-intervention or non-clinical trials. You didn't have to you didn't have to redefine these studies as clinical trials in order to achieve the goals that you're getting at. That yeah, is an important point. Yeah, I so mean, I, I suppose. I, I mean, what you're, what you're, 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 you're kind of messing with the definition of clinical trials in order to be able to fit into an existing framework, which may not have been necessary. It's true. You well, may, there, there, there is a rigorous debate as to whether or not observational studies should have to be registered as well. And, you know, I've, some journals have come down, you know, very strongly on the side of, no, the observational studies are different and... The, we don't want to hamstring them in the same way. Others have said, yeah, they probably should be, and you know, we would we would do better. And I think that's actually the direction that some of yeah. the social sciences are actually going. And I, I I'm not sure where we're gonna end up on this, but so 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 to an, let, then answer this question. So was this a was this a problem that needed to be solved? I, I think it probably was. Yeah. yeah. I, I I mean I think if you if you're if you look at like, you know, here here's a, a an experiment that was done and it generates this, you know, we, we talked about this with a specific uh a trial recently, which we actually didn't do on the pod, but we talked about it on the pod, where there was this experiment that was high profile in in a certain field and certainly drove the investigator's um, career, um, but then later could not be replicated. Yeah, yeah. And came under intense criticism and actually destroyed the individual's career. So you could say this is not just a, a, a like a regulatory burden. This is probably a way of protecting yourself. Um, because it stops you from being the one study that is conceived, like perceived as being, you know, the kernel of truth in this, providing this seminal insight, when in fact it may have been that the same study was done a dozen times before and was never registered and was never published. Yep. And this was the one exception that showed this remarkable result. P is less than 0.05, voila, it enters the literature. That's how it goes. So you think this is, this is a, a solution to the, a potential solution, a, a, a benefit terms of the publication bias problem? I think long-term it protects us and it's also the ethical thing to do. 
Okay. Yeah, I agree. All right. So that was far more agreement in the end than I think that I had thought we were going to get to. So I that's, totally disagree. I agree that you disagree. All right. So I let's, disagree about that. Let's <laughs> move on to our final segment then, which is our amazing and amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that, uh, boy, make us laugh until we can't stop laughing. And uh, look at some of the weird, and wacky things that inspire us. So, uh, Chris, you're uh, staring off into space. Do you want to? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Do you want to go first? Um, you know, we were talking about pain today, and so it, it triggered a memory of when I was a resident, um, particularly when I was an intern. This is my first year out of medical school, and I had a lot of patients in my primary medical clinic um, who had this condition called fibromyalgia, which is this mm. chronic sort of debilitating pain very syndrome, very poorly understood and really absent any particular effective treatments. And, um, you know, we had a lot of seminars about this condition and, and I basically knew that at that time, particularly we didn't have anything much that we could do for it other than to recommend exercise and maybe antidepressants. And so when I saw my patients who had fibromyalgia, I would sort of like come in and sheepishly, you know, I'm wearing my, my cruddy looking white coat covered with dubious stains, looking exhausted because I haven't slept in 48 hours and looking like a total rube. You know, and I would give my little spiel about fibromyalgia and our lack of effective treatments and blah, 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 blah. And my patients would look at me with utter skepticism and scorn and sometimes disgust. Mm -hmm. and, and I never helped anyone. And then there was Tom Cooney, who was our program director. And Tom had like this awesome like head of curly silver hair and he wore these cool sunglasses most of the time. And he'd, he was athletic and had his great tone, uh, tan and he had this deep sonorous voice. And his patients got so much better for their fibromyalgia than my patients. In terms of pain? In terms of pain. Like the Tom Cooney placebo effect was awesome. Oh. Right? Okay. Compared with the Dr. Gill, it was like, I'm like the anti-placebo. They look at me and say, they run in horror. They know <laughs> that I got nothing. I've got is nothing. There, is there an anti-placebo? <laughs> I think I was the anti-placebo. Anti so I was like very early on impressed by the placebo effect. It was so clear to me that yep. this was what. So, you know, I was, I, since then, you know, there's been a lot of research about placebos and, and some have even questioned whether is there in fact a placebo. And for, I think the doctors uniformly know that the placebo that is their friend, whereas maybe the clinical trialists see the placebo effect as their enemy. Anyway, so I pulled up this, this study by Zhang, uh, uh, Z-H-A-N-G, and colleagues published in Annals of Rheumatic Disease from 2008. So this is going back a bit. Um, and this was a meta-analysis of the placebo effect and its um, determinants in the setting of osteoarthritis. Now, what made this interesting is that there are a lot of, like with the, the study we did on antidepressants, there were a lot of placebo-controlled trials, but a lot of these studies also had a, a no-intervention arm in addition to a placebo arm mm -hmm. and the active arm. So they were able to do a meta-analysis around what is the placebo effect when you're comparing no treatment versus a placebo treatment. So nobody's getting nothing, right? Nobody's getting nothing. Nobody's getting nothing, but one group knows they're getting nothing. And Wait, the other group. what? Nobody's the, getting nothing? Nobody's getting nothing because it's nothing versus placebo, right? So somebody's getting nothing. Some, <laughs> so they're both getting nothing because the placebo is nothing in disguise, right? Um, <laughs> and yet, when you did the meta-analysis, you found that the, the people who got the placebos had spectacular uh, responses yeah. to the placebo yeah. compared with no treatment. Ah, well, they sense. knew they were getting nothing. 
when um, they knew they were they, getting a placebo. Yes, no, no. So when the, the the patients didn't know they were they were getting a placebo, they could have been getting the active control, right. the active drug, but they they didn't know. But the patients who were getting nothing certainly knew they were getting nothing. And yes. so you have sugar pill, ver- which means possibly something. And the tendency, the psychological tendency is for people to believe that they are getting the thing yeah. because already they feel better uh, versus I'm definitely not getting nothing and I'm, I'm grumpy and I'm, you know, I'm feeling bad. Uh, and, I, you know, the effect size was around 0.5 on average. And it was, 0.5 it, what? Point, it, it was an effect size. So it was a standardized oh, effect standardized. size. Okay. Yeah. So it Pardon. was, which, you know, we would consider to be a, a moderate to strong effect of the placebo. Wow. So I thought it was, it was a really clever, clever Very way cool. of looking at the data. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Don, what do you got for us? So I have a study that um, was published in the BMJ, um, and the authors are Anders Barheim and Hagne Sandvik, mm-hmm. both research fellows. What what month was this study published? Uh, geez, you know, I don't have that here. Oh, December. Oh. Um, and the title of the article is The Effect of Ale, Garlic, and Soured Cream on the Appetite of Leeches. Ale, Ale, garlic, and soured cream. In other words, if I eat these things, will the leeches want to eat me? Or are we feeding these things to the leeches? No, what you do is you dip, a combination of things. You you can dip the leeches in um, the ale. Oh. Or you can um, eat the garlic, or you can spread the sour cream on um, on your arm. And um, what they did, they had six leeches were dipped briefly into one of two different types of beer, Guinness Stout or Hansa Bach, or in water, which acted as the control, before being placed on the forearm of one of us, HS. So that's Hogne Sandovic. So so they stuck leeches on themselves? So they, they dipped leeches in the beer, and then they put them on the forearm, and they measured the time... Um, between when they were applied to the forearm and when the leech bit. Yeah, why? <laughs> so drunk leeches don't bite? Uh, apparently, uh, no. Apparently, they there is no difference in terms of their biting behavior based on the beer that so they So you can feed in. them beer, and it doesn't matter what kind of beer. No, apparently not. If you feed leeches beer. Right. Wow, that is revolutionary. That's yeah, good to know. They, they, I mean, conducted the... this, they conducted this study in a what they, what they term an intention to bite... <laughs> Approach. <laughs> the practical implications of this are right. Are astounding. They, they found no difference ah. with respect to the beer. They found that they were inhibited, apparently, by sour cream being um, smeared on your smeared arm. on your arm before you apply the leeches. Wouldn't the wouldn't the lake water wash off the leech the, the sour cream? Yeah, yeah. If you were gonna if you were gonna turn no, this separate, into, separate arm. No, no. But if you were gonna <laughs> turn so this <laughs> into a practical. Practical advice for public health. Right. right. The practical <laughs> advice would be if you're going to go into a lake with leeches, smear, smear yourself with sour, with sour cream. cream, but then it's going to wash it's off. It's going to wash off. Right. We so need, so we need like you, a right? suntan... Right. Uh, if only Humphrey Bogart had known that in Africa Queen. <laughs> they need a long-acting sour cream. <laughs> I, was thinking, more, but most, I was thinking stand by me. But, mo- but most importantly, <laughs> two leeches were uh, placed on the forearm smeared with garlic, started to wriggle and crawl without assuming the sucking position. They were placed in water, but their condition deteriorated. When placed on a bare arm, they tried to initiate feeding, but did not manage to coordinate the process. Both leeches died two and a half hours after exposure to garlic. So Just the garlic. Of garlic? Garlic, yeah. So if you smear garlic on your arm, you put the leech on, then the leech gets all disoriented and falls off and dies. So you should smear yourself with garlic. Correct. Correct. That's Before going into a leech and inf- wow, why are you swimming in leech infested ponds? That's a in the really first good place? question. Um, okay, so does does this is this the origin of the vampire and garlic? 
Could um, be. Yeah, could rumor? be. Could be. Probably true rumor. Probably true. Yes, I am sure it is true. <laughs> yes, Chris, well done. So you, they say they you say you have sussed like, it out. In, ingested <laughs> garlic. Our... Ingested garlic has been reported to be lethal to some animals, but we believe that this to be the first study showing garlic to be lethal by skin absorption. Garlic has a definite force of attraction on leeches, but further research into this fatal attraction will require in-depth mm. qualitative methods. No, oh, we're going to interview the leeches? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. wow. All right. That's very handy. That is. Know. Is it? Is it? It is. Yes. I think we need to keep it at arm's length, frankly. Oh. <laughs> oh. More research is needed. Yeah. All right. So then uh, for me, so I got a question for you guys, because I've, I've seen a lot of debate on this one. Who is, who is the reviewer that gets you? Is it reviewer number two or reviewer number three? Two. Two, two. seems to have my number. Two is the one? Oh, Done? it's definitely one. No, it's not one. It's oh, yeah. always two or three. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be number one? It's never. As soon as they one. read it, they say this is like... Just no, 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 no. There's only, it's either reviewer number two or reviewer number okay, three. Okay, number three. Most people say it's reviewer number two. I agree with you. For me, it's reviewer number three, but most people say it's reviewer number <laughs> But who's leading the witness? Two. But here's one where they say, okay, reviewer number three, but fine. So uh, I'm a little late. I get it. But uh, during Valentine's Day, did you guys see the uh, hashtag going around? Hashtag academic Valentine's? No. No. Okay. So people were posting academic uh, Valentine uh, uh what do you call them? Poems? Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a few of them to you. This one is from... He's so literary. I am. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm not even going to say who it's from because what does a Twitter handle tell you? But this one is, roses are red, lilies are blue. This poem was short, but reviewer number three required a number of modifications. So we had to cite, <laughs> we had to cite many of his, poem, his own poems and also change the title of the poem, rephrase the last few rhymes, and replace violets by lilies. <laughs> Hashtag <laughs> academic valentines. Okay, that was one. That's good. I'll give you another one. Um, this one has a lot of brackets in it, but I'll just read it as is. Roses are assumed to be red unless otherwise stated. Violets <laughs> are assumed to be blue unless otherwise stated. This statement on love is tenuous and unquantifiable. Please reframe as an arousal in the hypothesis. <laughs> Roses are red. Violets are blue. What colors are flowers? We can't say. N equals two. Oh, God. Roses are red. Correlation isn't causation. If this gets retweeted, does it count as citation? Oh, it should. <laughs> oh, I like it that. should. I just realized my pathway to promotion at last. But you just said earlier you get your tweets get zero retweets. <sighs> so oh, that was sorry. That wasn't so early. That was aren't, we, aren't we assessed on the number of tweets? I think. In addition to the number of publications now at I believe Boston we University? are now. So there I'm you doomed. go. I'm You're doomed. doomed. Sorry. Well, so that's the end of our program. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @prophmatfox, or you can tweet Chris at, at @idnotthatillgilgood, or <laughs> Don at, at @dtheo1, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and basically for putting up with us. And Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks Great for joining editing, us. editing, man. Awesome we, editing, Nick. Hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download the next episode. <laughs>